0: Hello, I'm Thad Seymour, President of the Lake Nona Institute. Welcome to our 2015 podcast series. These recordings were made in late February 2015 during the Lake Nona Impact Forum, presented by Johnson & Johnson and held in Lake Nona Medical City in Orlando, Florida. We invite you to listen, join the conversation, and learn more at LakeNonaImpactForum.org. Welcome again to our third and, I believe, best ever impact forum. You know, over the next couple of days, uh, you're going to see, uh, many of you who have not here, been here before, see pasture land that in less than a decade has been transformed through $2.5 billion or more in construction. But you know, none of that would have been possible without a group of committed, dedicated, visionary leaders here in Orlando and throughout the state You've already met Deb German, you'll meet a number, and some of you have met Tim Lazert who runs our VA, and you'll meet many of the other uh, leaders and partners who are part of making this all happen. But right now, to kick us off and start our first session, I'd like to introduce you to one of the most tenacious, driven people I know. He's been leading the charge at Tavistock Group on everything Lake Nona for nearly 15 years. He is our resident-inspired maniac. <laughs> he is officially Senior Managing Director of the Tavistock Group. Please welcome to the stage Recess Thacker. Sesh.
1: Thank you, Thad. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you, Thad. So when you read the bios of both Arianna Huffington, the chairman, CEO, and founder of the Huffington Media Group, and Alex Gorsky, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. It reminds me of the story of a little girl who was watching a violinist play at a concert. Afterwards, the little girl said to the violinist that she would give her life to play like that. The violinist responded, I did. Both Ariana and Alex have given their life to causes that make our world a better place. Both are Presidents and Chairs of Globally Recognizable Respected Culture Changing Brands. Both have amazing education backgrounds. She's Cambridge. He's West Point and Wharton. Both serve on several prestigious boards. Just a few examples. Ariana on the Board of PRISA and the Center for Public Integrity. Alex on the Board of IBM and the Congressional Medal of Honor Board. We are amongst two of the top-named 100 most influential people in this nation. Both are prolific speakers and thought leaders in healthcare. The awards and accolades both have received as proof that they have dedicated their lives to their causes, and their causes are to give back and make the world a better place. Ariana's latest book, number 14, but who's counting, debuted on the New York Times bestselling list. I love the title, Ariana. Thrive. And I believe in your message for life balance with activities like meditation and your emphasis on wisdom and wonder in our lives. Alex, your presence and presentation here last year changed the trajectory of Lake Nona, and your global efforts are undoubtedly doing the same, changing the world. Please help me welcome two people who have dedicated their lives to making your life better, Arianna Huffington and Alex Gorsky.
2: Thank you so much for this wonderful introduction. I think a main difference between Alex and me is that he does not have an accent. <laughs> Despite uh, all my years in England and here, I cannot get rid of it. And uh, it used to be the bane of my existence until I met Henry Kissinger. And he he said to me, stop worrying about your accent. In American public life, you can never overestimate the advantages of complete and total incomprehensibility. (laughs) So please bear with me. There are so many amazing visionaries and practitioners of everything that I believe in, everything that is in Thrive, everything that our world is moving towards in terms of prioritizing well-being, both in individual lives, workplaces, and communities, that I feel a little bit like Claire Booth Luce, who, um, who became converted to Catholicism, and she was finally given an audience with the Pope. And she walked in and started extolling the virtues of Catholicism. And at one point, the Pope interrupted her and said, Madame booth you forget, I am already a Catholic. (laughs) So I don't want you to do the same. But very quickly, before I bring Alex up, I want to say that eight years ago, I came to these realizations the hard way. I collapsed from exhaustion, sleep deprivation, and burnout. That's the opening page of Thrive. And as I came to, in my own pool of blood, having broken my cheekbone and gotten four stitches, it turned out, on my right eye, I had to ask myself these big questions. Is this what success is? Is this what a good life, as the Greek philosophers called it, is? And that started my journey that brought me here and that has made me study this amazing, perfect storm that we're in the middle of and that you're doing so much about here at Lake Nona. The first trend, the first part of this perfect storm is the fact that for the first time, amazing science is validating ancient wisdom. And there are many scientists here, so you know. All the new scientific findings about the importance of sleep in terms of our health, in terms of our immune system, the importance of meditation, the importance of renewal are unprecedented. The second trend is the fact that the cost of living a different way has become unsustainable. Both in terms of dollars and cents, 75% of healthcare costs in America are because of preventable stress-related diseases, but also the cost in terms of decision-making among our leaders. I quote Bill Clinton in Thrive who said, the most important mistakes I made in my life, I made when I was tired. He did not specify what mistakes. (laughs) But we can all look around and see leaders, you know, in business, in politics, in media, who are very smart, but lack wisdom. And that's where the mistakes come from. And as a result, we see... In that amazing third trend, which is what makes me optimistic, that increasingly all these ideas that used to be more marginal, in fact some would consider flaky, new agey, born out of California, are now going mainstream. Front pages of the Wall Street Journal, you may have read the article today, When is a Job Just a Job?, talking about purpose and uh, making a job about something more than a paycheck. But we also see it in Davos. 27 sessions um, this year were about these issues, and they're standing room only. And we see this shift when uh, 2014 became the year when CEOs started coming out not as being gay, but as being meditators. You know, Ray Dalio uh, came out saying, I've been meditating for 45 years, the founder of Bridgewater, and considered the foundation of my success. Mark Benioff at Salesforce. In fact, I was speaking at uh, his annual gathering at Salesforce, and they were promoting a new platform that they said had 99.9% uptime. And I'd like to end with that because I think it's really everything we're talking about. And I said in my speech that human beings were not designed to have 99.9% uptime. And that's not because... God was not as smart as Mark Benioff. It's because for human beings, downtime and the opportunity for renewal that you are offering here is not a bug but a feature. That's why God came up with the idea of the Shabbat. You know, he worked very hard for six days, created heaven and earth, so that was quite an achievement, and then he took a day off. I mean, if he's all-powerful and omnipresent and everything, he really did not have to take a day off. (laughs) But he did in order to teach us a lesson. And that's why I was talking to a couple of gentlemen from Cisco, and I said one of my favorite executives is Padma Warrior, the CTO of Cisco, because she talks openly about taking Saturday off and doing a digital detox. And I love a chief technology officer talking about a digital detox. That's the new world we're living in, when we're beginning to recognize that burnout is not a necessary price for success or achievement. And elite athletes are at the front of this effort, with Pete Carroll and Phil Jackson at the Knicks and Kobe Bryant and many of them using all these um, techniques and tools as performance enhancement um, opportunities. So I'm delighted to be here, and I want to invite you all to write about everything you're doing on the Huffington Post. We just launched a section that we're calling What's Working, and we want to help accelerate all the good things that are happening by putting the spotlight on them and starting a positive contagion. So please join this movement that you're already part of, but that we can also take to the media, and therefore accelerate all the amazing work that you are doing. Thank you so much. And now it gives me a great pleasure to ask Alex to come to the stage. And as you are coming up, Alex, I want to, to share something that you may not know about him. Alex and I first bonded not over our shared interest in well being, but over our shared love of Greece. Uh, You may not know that he was in the U.S. Army stationed in Greece for 15 months in Drama, which is in northern Greece. And as a result, he speaks Greek. He uh, has amazing Greek stories that he will tell you over a glass of wine. And um, so when I discovered that not only does he share this love of Greece, but this love of shifting the world towards a place of well-being and thriving... I knew I would be a fan of Alex's for life, and I'm delighted that he and I have a chance for a conversation now.
3: Thank you, Ariana. Although I'll, I'll, I can guarantee you that my Greek accent, or her English accent, is much better than my Greek accent.
2: <laughs> so you have been doing so much at Johnson Johnson to take all that you personally believe about the importance of well-being and actually make it available to tens of thousands of employees around the world and make it really part of your workplace credo, not just the well-known credo of J&J, but the way you are updating it with what you are doing. So tell us some of the things that you are proudest of.
3: Sure, Anna, but uh, look, let me first just start by thanking all of you for being here and Shesh for the very generous introduction. Uh, and I think I can say I'm now a veteran of three Lake Nona programs. And uh, wow, the progress that's been made during the time. And you know it starts with the progress in the facilities, many of which I've had a chance to visit, uh, not only this trip, but previous visits, the quality of the program. Uh, you know, you must have pictures of somebody, because I'll tell you, you have really <laughs> got a top-notch uh, group of uh, speakers. I was wondering what I was doing being among them. But it was great to see you that. And I know that over the next couple of days, you're going to have some wonderful discussions. And uh, and I think it's just going to expand the impact that that you're going to have on healthcare in a much broader sense. So, you know, thank you and congratulations for the great progress. Let's give you guys a round of applause. <laughs> you know, so to your question, Ariana, look, I I feel very fortunate to be with a company like Johnson and Johnson. I mean, we're by many measures. Just because of the breadth, the scale, the size of our different businesses and consumer, and medical devices, and pharmaceuticals. We're the largest healthcare company in the world. There's not many countries where we don't have a position. And I'm incredibly proud of the traditions, the history, you know, the, the impact that we have. We estimate that probably a billion patients around the world use our products every day. And, and that's a that's an honor and a privilege to work. For that kind of an organization, um, and and while I'm incredibly proud of what we do, we also said, look, if we're gonna, if we are the world's largest healthcare company, we should be the healthiest healthcare company. In essence, we've got to walk the talk. And um, you know, many of my predecessors, and it actually goes back uh, quite a few years to the, you know the the son of the founder. Uh, had instituted different internal health care programs. But I would say really about 20 or 30 years ago, we started looking at you know, how can we become more involved, more engaged, in helping our own employees be healthier. And you know, we had a chance to, to work in things like a Live for Life program. And you know, by today's standards, it doesn't sound very progressive, but putting a gym in your facilities 25 years ago, it was pretty um, progressive to be doing those kind of things, to actually try and, you know, in an appropriate way work with your employees to identify, well, what conditions were leading to some of the biggest challenges that they faced, and could we have more personalized programs around things, whether it was childbirth or smoking cessation programs, things of that nature. And and through the years, you know, we've gradually ramped up this program where... You know, now uh, it is truly a mission that we have at Johnson & Johnson. And um, I'm, I'm very proud of the progress that we made in a lot of those areas. You know, if you, you know, if you look at our healthcare costs, if you look at the investments that we made, we see a great return. In fact, we say for every dollar that we're investing in healthcare, and particularly in prevention and wellness programs, we think we're getting about three or four dollars on a return. We think if we look at our average healthcare, our biometrics, our standards, we do better than the norms, at least the benchmark data that we that is available. And, and I think a very strong corollary to that is you know, something that we do every two years at Johnson & Johnson is we ask our employees how we're doing against our credo commitments that we make. And as you mentioned, our credo, it's a document that was written by the son of our founder over 70 years ago. That, was really done on the eve of the company going public. And he was quite concerned, in essence, that the company might lose its soul when it went public. And so he wrote this document that said, look, our first responsibility are to patients, to doctors, surgeons, nurses, parents, children who use our products, to our employees, that they have a great working, healthy working environment, safe working environment, uh, to our communities in which we live. Are we giving back? And ultimately, to our shareholders. And it's, it's something that we take very seriously. We don't always get it right, but we use it to try to get it right all the time. And every two years, we send out this survey, and it's about a 100-question survey. It's a long time. We get over 90% participation, and it gives us a good indication of what's the level of engagement in the organization. And what we can see is, as we have done more in this area of wellness and prevention, our engagement scores of the company have actually increased at the same time. And I think you know, too often in this country, we tend to think of healthcare only as a line item or on a budget or a cost versus an investment in productivity, an investment in our society, an investment to our well-being. And, and we think when we have healthier employees who are feeling better, they're going to do better, they're going to help more patients, and it becomes a self-fulfilling you know, model. And that's why we're so committed in that area.
2: Well, what is really impressive is that you've, you're constantly making the connection between the wellness of your employees and the health of the bottom line. So these two things are not unrelated. And by connecting them, I know I've heard from a lot of other companies that they are looking to emulate what you're doing. But what I'm interested in is that you started with the basic, you know, the physical, gyms right. mm-hmm. in the workplace. But then you didn't stop there. You've moved on to really mental health, in a broad, very broadly defined, starting with stress. You yes. know, the amount of stress that is caused by workplaces is, is now we know scientifically a huge factor in every disease. You know, diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular, everything.
4: Right.
2: And I'm very interested that you even have done something which is... Really, very pioneering because I'm studying um, how companies are adapting to these new ideas, which is looking at the employee at the employees' email practices. Yes. And what they're doing over the weekend? Would you talk about that?
3: Sure. Well, you know we we do our best to say, you know, how can we make sure that we're providing an environment that is conducive to good health. And look, it starts with the things that you just mentioned, but it starts with, okay, what do you serve in your cafeteria? Are you giving healthy options or you know, during the breaks? Uh, we've done a lot of those things. We um, actually were one of the first large healthcare companies to invest in wellness and prevention about 10 years ago. And uh, in fact, right around the corner from here, there's an organization called the Human Performance Institute. And uh, you know, I think Jim Lair and Jack Koppel are out here in the audience right now that were involved the very founding, came up with this idea. And, and the part of their vision at that time was, you know, how can we have a more of a focus on wellness and prevention rather than just sick care? And, and by the way, starting not only with better diet, better exercise, but actually connecting it to your purpose as an individual and as a leader. And what we found is that it can be a very powerful experience uh, for our employees. And in fact, I took my leadership team through this several years ago. And uh, you know, one of the most challenging parts is the pre-work that go- you take on before you go to this three-day program. It includes an extensive 360 of not only your team, but your husband, your wife, your children. And uh, and it's pretty eye-opening when you arrive the first day and you get this in surround sound. Uh, how are you showing up? And then and the questions are more like, you know, what kind of energy do you show up with? Do you put energy into the room? You know, and, and like, as you said earlier, some people might think that's California speak. You know, my son would say, you know, that's exactly it, Dad. You take it out sometimes. You know, when you do this, <laughs> and in hearing that before you go in is very powerful. And then. You know, I can remember after the first day, hearing it from so many of my peers who, you know, these are very successful people that have, you know, gone to all the right schools, done wonderful things. It shows how much we share as humans the frailties of, you know, I don't know if I can keep up this pace. Yes. Uh, I am afraid of letting people down. And hearing those kind of things and giving your employees an environment where they can again unite that purpose of you know what's their purpose and their role in their life, how do they find better balance, you know, to, to deal with these impossible schedules that we all lead. And it, it starts with the little things, and you know, one of the things I talked about, when you walk in the door at night is The first thing you do how do you get out of your car and you walk in is look at your iPhone or your email and you're clicking it off while your' significant others talking to you <laughs> and you're going you're, you're double tasking. and instead of do you walk in and do you put it face down on the table, turn it off and say, you know let's connect for the next hour. I'm there for you. And do you answer the phone when it rings when you're in the middle of an employee discussion session? Um, it, little things that you do is we have a policy. Where you say if you get an email on the weekend, the expectation is that you don't have to respond until Monday unless there's a specific, urgent, I need, you know, now, which should be only in very rare situations. So that, you know, when you get that email on a Saturday night when you're out for dinner from somebody, you get, oh, my God, you know, you can't enjoy the dinner. It's setting those kind of expectations. So those sound like small things, but they have huge impacts that we believe in the culture and the environment that you create in a company.
2: And, of course, Jim Lehrer has done pioneering work. I didn't know you were here, Jim. I'm a huge admirer on this, you know, the the importance of energy as opposed to the way we've been valuing productivity around time, like how many hours are you at the job. Absolutely. It doesn't really mean anything in terms of how productive are you. And we are beginning to spread that message and, and get more adapters. But at the same time, don't you find that there are a lot of uh, traditional ways of approaching our workplaces that start with the language. You know, the way we congratulate people for working 24-7, which scientists here will verify is the cognitive equivalent of coming to work drunk. That's right. (laughs) And yet, there there is still, especially among the men, not in the room, but in the rest of the world, (laughs) this kind of wearing sleep deprivation like a badge of honor. I had Mm -hmm. dinner with someone recently who bragged that he had only gotten four hours sleep the night before, and I didn't say it because I'm a properly brought up young, no longer young, but Greek girl. I said, you know, I thought, um, you know what, if you had slept for five hours, this dinner would have been a lot more interesting. (laughs) So there is a lot of shift. Of shifts that have to happen, starting you know at the corporate suite around language. Oh,
3: I think it starts at the top, Ariana, and you bring that up. I I can remember you know several years ago traveling over to Europe, and of course you get on you know you get on the plane, you go over at night, and you know you land, and it's seven a.m. In you know, Switzerland, when it's midnight, your time, and the expectation is you go into the meeting. The team there has been preparing for three weeks to get the presentation just right. You walk in, and you fall asleep, and you're <laughs> drooling on yourself. And, and they look at you going, don't you care? You know, I've been working hard on this. And you're going, no, it's just that you know, I'm completely exhausted. I say, why don't you go to the hotel room? Why don't you rest for a bit, maybe get a walk-in or workout if that's what you like to do. Start at 11, maybe go a little bit later, and you're going to be so much more engaged. You're going to be on top of your game. And telling people it's okay to do that. Even, even having the conversation in town halls that your expectation is that people should feel free to go to the gym at lunch. That's okay to do. And when the very top of the organization says it, it sets a tone that, oh, that is okay. Okay by doing it yourself, uh, by encouraging people to participate. And again, it's not about running a marathon or doing a triathlon. It's about finding your own ways to make sure, at the end of the day, that you show up being your best. Because you know, all too often, we all have these examples that we, as leaders, you know, we, we put our own health in the backseat. And we're so busy, we're so engaged, and you're trying to balance different things. And you go through life and the next thing you know, you made all that sacrifice and commitment and then you have some untoward health event and your family doesn't get to benefit from all that you've done. What a loss that is. And so I think it, it's, it makes you a better leader, it makes you a better executive, it's better for your health, for our health as a country, and frankly, I think we're going to be more productive, more efficient, more effective.
2: But it's also true, don't you find, that as change has become so fast... That as a chief executive, um, if you really don't renew yourself, you're not going to be able to make the big decisions and see the icebergs before they hit the Titanic. Oh,
3: ab- absolutely. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. I, I'll coach people all the time to say, you know, who you are as a leader. Eventually, when you're doing these jobs, you're doing them so long that if you're faking it, they'll, you know, they'll figure it out. So, who you are as a person becomes who you are as a leader. You know, my wife tells me all the time whenever I do these 360s, I'll say, can you believe they said that about me? And she said, yeah, I could have told you, and you wouldn't have had to spend near that much money, <laughs> you know, in, 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 your, in your habits. And so, you know, if you're a tired person, if you're a boring person, you're going to be a tired and boring leader. And that's not very inspiring to an organization. It's not going to be... So I think keeping, keeping those things aligned, keeping them parallel is absolutely important.
2: You've had some amazing results, and I've actually seen a video that you've done that um, puts some of these results together. Can we show it?
3: Absolutely. Can we show
4: it? Joint pain affects every aspect of a patient's life. And one of the challenges we as orthopedic surgeons have, and we as surgeons in general have, is that we often look at the patient as a number. And we look at the patient as someone that needs uh, a surgery. We often don't look at them as an individual person. And the Patient-Athlete Program really changes our mindset and really changes how we look at the individual patient. The Patient-Athlete Program is a collaboration between Depew Synthes and Johnson Johnson Human Performance Institute. It really helps patients become empowered. It allows us to look at a patient differently. We look at the patient not just as a patient with joint pain. It's a patient that has other problems, both spiritual, mental, emotional, and from an energy standpoint. The patients we've enrolled in the Patient Athlete Program have just been thrilled with it. So we're now giving patients much more care than we used to give them before this program. We are able to focus more fully on their on their overall wellness, and patients recognize that. Patients realize that we're not just treating them with a the surgery. I'm excited by Johnson Johnson's commitment to the patient. If we can treat the patient not only with their joint pain, but we can treat the whole patient, that is the uh, that is the ultimate inpatient care.
3: You know, Ariana, this um, this video gives a a snippet of some of the change that we're seeing both in the healthcare system as well as in our company. And I think more and more, and, you know, and I'm, I'm very fortunate. I get to travel around the world and talk about healthcare in many different countries and many different kinds of healthcare systems. But clearly, this issue of how are we going to provide high quality healthcare that is more patient centric at a lower cost is likely one of the biggest challenges we face in our generation, the next several generations, when you consider the expected you know, aging demographics, increasing middle class, and the increases in health care. And, and more and more, what you hear is, how do we move from sick care to well care? How do we move from thinking of a product, a procedure, or a test to an episode of care or an outcome? And, and so what we start thinking about is, you know, given the diversity that we have in our business at Johnson & Johnson, and we've been very, you know, very long segmented by business lines, you know, what we're finding is that there are many healthcare leaders now saying, look, we want a partner to think how do we focus more on a patient outcome? How do we how do we have, again, how do we get a, a better outcome, better management of costs, and at the same time get the patient more involved? And, And we're very fortunate at Johnson & Johnson because when you think about our different businesses, yes, we have, you know, in this case, a prosthetic device for the knee. We have a lot of the instruments that might be used intraoperatively in the surgeon, but we also have a great health and wellness center that talks about how do you recover faster? How can you use patient education ahead of a procedure to set better expectations? Because we all know if you have better expectations, you're likely to have a better outcome. And so in this case, you know, we're partnering in the patient-athlete program in a very holistic approach with a patient that looks at this entire episode of care, for example, in a knee replacement, uh, that we think is just one example of part of the transformation that needs to take place in healthcare overall.
2: And uh, how are these messages communicated to your employees? Like, what kind of metrics do you have? What kind of accountability? Because if we're going to have... um, an accelerated adoption of these practices, we need to give other companies you know, a, a way to be able no. to measure what is happening, to measure the impact.
3: It's a great question, and I would imagine many of you here who are leaders in healthcare or in the system, you know, this kind of change will not be easy. You know, our organizations tend to operate within their silos. And so breaking down some of those walls, and by the way, that's in a hospital, to have the pharmacy talking to radiology, to talking to administration, talking to other areas, that's in our companies, having the pharmaceutical group talk to the medical device group. You know, whatever aspect you're involved in, if you're in academia, how do we, breaking down some of those, and learning, and, and having more creative, more integrated approaches, I think is a big part of the solution. That's something that we are really working on. You know, we're, in many cases, we're piloting, we're learning as we go through these. In some cases, you've got to find partners who are willing to go with you through this journey. Uh, But some of the early successes have been very encouraging. For example, in this program, we see that, you know, over 60% of the time, patients feel much more engaged by having these kind of conversations rather than just coming in, having your appointment scheduled, and maybe having a five-minute pre-op discussion with the physician, and then being discharged as soon as possible. We find that over 55% of the time, they actually have a better outcome in terms of how quick do they return to mobility and how do they feel about the experience. And we find nine out of 10 times they say, I would absolutely recommend this to somebody else, and they feel better about their overall care. And so again, if you, if you have a better informed, better educated patient, your chances to have a more aligned outcome are going to be improved. And, and so we're really encouraged but we realize all of us have still got a lot of work to do to make some of these more integrated approaches work.
2: And at the employee level, um, it's really affecting recruitment and retention, isn't it? And, uh, and as uh, the, the battle for recruiting talent is becoming one of the biggest battles companies are, are dealing with, this must have huge consequences. I,
3: I think more and more, especially, especially the millennials, they want to work for purpose-driven Organizations. They want to feel part of something bigger than themselves. And look, I think that's something everybody here is so committed in the healthcare area. We are really privileged to be working in this space. Uh, but I think that manifests itself by the people who we want to attract. Uh, I, mean, I tell people all the time you can't think of a, an industry where there's going to be more change, where there's going to be better, more incredible use of technology, bigger challenges than healthcare over the next. 20, 30, 50 years, hence a great place to have a career. And, you know, we find having that kind of a purpose is important, but also creating this kind of an environment where they feel cared about uh, is as important, frankly, as what the check is, uh, what the job title is, what the responsibility. It's about creating the right culture.
2: In fact, um, the commitment that Johnson & Johnson has made to global maternal health is another thing that... um, We share because uh, we created a section um, with the Huffington Post on global maternal health, which has been incredibly successful, where we actually track everything that's working in that sphere. And we have people who are benefiting blogging and doing videos, and we have um, people who are providing the help, writing about it. And it's been amazing that we're going into our fifth year.
4: Yeah.
2: And uh, it's also a demonstration of something that more and more companies want to do, to be really identified with a cause, with something that goes beyond their primary reason to be in business.
3: Absolutely. It's, the, it's, it's good business, and it's the right thing to do.
2: <laughs> so we have uh, five minutes left, right, to go to the audience and take any questions you have. So... Um, I don't know who wants to go first, but maybe you can tell us your name and what you do and how many hours sleep you get. (laughs) Yes.
0: My name is Dr. Shampath, Professor I'm the Associate Dean for Research at College of Medicine. Adriana... You have huge millions of fans following your writing and your, uh, your shows.
2: We and people with accents have to stick together.
0: <laughs> and, and Alex, you lead a massive firm consisting of medical professionals and you both have different backgrounds. How do you make people listen to you? Because I hardly have 40 people understand me.
4: <laughs> Go ahead.
2: Um, well, for me... Um, beyond my own writing and speaking, I see the Huffington Post as a vehicle um, to both do our own journalism. You know, we have 850 reporters, editors in 13 countries. I normally brag about it, except when I'm talking to Alex, because they're in 1,000 countries. Uh, but nevertheless, all around the world. And uh, so what I love is that when, when an idea like the idea of wellness becomes clearly important. We have an opportunity to spread it around really fast. To have 26 sections on the Huffington Post on these themes, you know, ranging from sleep to meditation. Um, we also have nap rooms at the Huffington Post, um, so that at first, when I instituted nap rooms four years ago in the middle of New York, in the middle of a very busy newsroom, there was a lot of eye rolling. Now I have to say they are perpetually full. Although, I must say, the other day, I don't know what you do about that. We're off the record, right? But the other day, I was going by one of the nap rooms, and I saw two people coming
4: out of it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I thought to myself, whatever it takes to That's recharge That's progressive, you, right? there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your head of HR is laughing at me. Yes. <laughs> So, Alex, what do you think makes you most effective? You know, it's
3: interesting because I'll frequently get that question when you look at an organization that size, you know, how do you do it? And I say, well, it's not as though I have a phone call every Monday morning and say, okay, Bob and, you know, Benghazi, how are things going? And, uh, you know, you go around. But it's really what I find is the most important thing is continuing to emphasize the values of the company. Uh, Because we, you know, we hire thousands of wonderful scientists, uh, great business leaders, uh, people extremely qualified. But it's to make sure ultimately that the value system, because for me, that's what's going to make a difference 10 years, 20 years, 100 years from now. Making sure that you know, we've got the right leaders in place. As I always say, I don't manage 130,000 people. What I do is I try to hire 10 really outstanding, capable leaders like Peter Fasolo, who's out in front of you. They then hire 10 people that share that value system. Hence, they hire ten more, and um, and and so it's really about values and people are the most important thing, and then and then communicating and engaging uh, is you've got you know sometimes it can be a, a bit like a Broadway play, you know when you're in the audience you get there and you think oh my gosh they just blew it away, and for the people up on stage that's their thirteenth time they've done it, <laughs> you know that week well you've got to communicate with the same engagement enthusiasm your priorities your messages for the organization because that's what builds alignment. And for me, that sense of alignment, prioritization, is most important. Thank you.
2: Yes, the lady there. Hi,
5: uh, my name is Julie and I work for a company now called Edison Nation Medical. Uh, but prior to being in the role that I'm in, I actually helped to co-found an integrative medicine program in the San Francisco Bay Area. So what the message you're sending totally resonates with me. I, I completely understand the importance of the work that you're doing, and I applaud your efforts because obviously you have a lot of power that I didn't necessarily have working for a small hospital in San Francisco. But um, I can tell you that my, the experience that I had in trying to build this program to the level that it's at today, uh, I, I equated, I used to call it swimming through the tsunami yeah. because it was incredibly difficult to fight the forces that were we're working against treating the whole person. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the biggest things, I was an econ major undergrad, and one of the biggest um, issues I saw was just this misalignment of incentives. I I can't tell you how many times I tried to push through what I knew the patients wanted, what I knew the physicians wanted as a level of care for their patients, whether that be a cancer patient, a cardiovascular patient, diabetes patient, and I couldn't get it to happen because when I actually went to the, the doctors and said, please tell me, what am I doing wrong? What can I do to make this work? And they said, you know what? It's not reimbursable. And right. that's what it came down to. And so I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, obviously, you know, Johnson know, Johnson has tremendous power to make an impact in this area. I'd love to hear what you've encountered and what you might be doing.
3: Sure. You know what, look, I would start by saying, I feel your pain, <laughs> uh, it, because it is a big challenge. And it's a big challenge in a few ways. One, it's a big challenge in the healthcare system that we have, that right now is, in many ways, procedure-based, and that's the way... People are reimbursed. That's the way people are rewarded. That's the way careers, institutions, or can companies are built. And so changing that requires a major um, transformation in an organization. And by the way, that's in a hospital system as well. You know One of the things that I encounter frequently is I realize that you, you literally have got to go to the very top levels of the organization. And, and then even then, if I talk to a hospital CEO they have the same challenge that I have and say, how do I, how can I get the pharmaceutical group to work in conjunction with the device group and our consumer group? They have the same issue with trying to get pharmacy to work with surgery and, and their re- rehabilitation program. And, and so breaking down some of those walls is a major challenge. In some cases it's requiring us now to go to places like CMS to fundamentally talk about the way we're reimbursing for procedures. How do you do, while there's a You know, the Affordable Care Act talks about how do we do a better job of risk sharing, of going on a procedure or outcomes-based approach. When you start talking to try to reimburse that, it gets very tricky. And so, you know, I'll be the first to say we are taking small steps in that direction, but I think it's inevitable in healthcare over time, we as an ecosystem in healthcare are going to have to move because ultimately everybody's going to want better outcomes, more patient engagement, and lower costs. And the only way that we'll be successful is by fundamentally changing some of the structures that we have in place, including incentive systems and uh, the way that we work together.
2: Shall we take one last question? I think we better not. Okay.
4: better
2: not. I'm told we better not. So thank you so much, Alex. Thank you so much for thank everything Thank you, Arianna.